Okay, please settle down. Let us start. Namaste to all of you. Tonight we are arriving at a beautiful moment in the history of the school in, the, in our satsang evenings because this marks the beginning of a new cycle of discourses in the late night meetings and in the satsangs we have been going through various subjects and sometimes I have chosen to hold independent lectures on a subject or another such as last week we concluded the Shambhala lectures and sometimes we have longer cycles of lectures which are focused on commenting a vaster subject or which are focused on analyzing traditional texts. We made years ago here an analysis of the Gospel of Matthew, the words of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. We did here a beautiful analysis of the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, one of the fundamental texts of yoga, one of the basic texts of yoga. And tonight we are coming to the point where we start a whole new series and this new series is focused on a very, very inspiring, a core teaching text of Oriental spirituality, of Indian spirituality in particular, praised by many, many of the great yogis. There is basically none of the great yogis of tradition which does not acknowledge this text as a text of great spirituality. And we are talking, of course, of the famous Bhagavad Gita. It is my intention to start lecturing on Bhagavad Gita for a number of weeks, going through this extraordinary text with so many ramifications, with so many implications. Let's say from the very beginning that although each and every chapter of Bhagavad Gita is called yoga, the yoga of this, the yoga of that, paradoxically even the first chapter is called the yoga of the despondency of Arjuna. Arjuna, the main character in this dialogue, is despondent, is depressed, it is de he is discouraged. And this is how the whole teachings of Krishna start. But so the first chapter only introduces us into the background of the story and what the circumstances are. And it tells us that Krishna, I'm sorry, Arjuna, because of circumstances which you are going to understand in tonight's presentation, Arjuna gets discouraged, despondent. And that chapter is called the Yoga of the Despondency of Arjuna. Like, although this text uses the word yoga all the time, and it has chapters such as Sankhya Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, Jnana Yoga, Karma Yoga, big names, all of them in the universe of yoga, nevertheless this text is rather considered to be a Hindu scripture. It is, we often say, and in every month in the introductory lecture on what is yoga, I clearly want to cut the distinction between yoga as spiritual method and Hinduism 
as world religion. However, in Bhagavad Gita, this line is blurred. Bhagavad Gita overrides both of them. Bhagavad Gita is in the twilight zone between yoga and Hinduism. A little bit also like the sun salutation. The sun salutation, the Surya Namaskara, you are warned in the third day of our yoga courses when you always learn it, that Surya Namaskara is originally a Hindu rite. It belongs to Hinduism. The Tibetans don't have it. The Jains don't have it. It's strictly a matter of Hinduism. And again, while yoga and Hinduism are different from each other, at the same time nobody can deny that the basic bulk of yoga, the way we know it and practice it today, did appear in the Vedic Hindu Brahmanic society. That's why the connections between yoga and Hinduism are of course bigger than the connections between yoga and Buddhism, yoga and Jainism, yoga and Sufism or any other religious trends with which yoga may have been associated along in time. It is therefore worth mentioning it very clearly that Bhagavad Gita is to a large extent a Hindu scripture, but at the same time it's a Hindu scripture which contains a lot of yoga stuff into it. If you would look in the Christian tradition, in the Christian tradition, especially the so-called Gnostics, the Gnostic sect, the Gnosticism, which left its traces in the Coptic Egyptian Christianity of today and a few other divisions or denominations of Christianity, the Gnosticism was closest to be a sort of yoga of Christianity. For example, in the Gnostic texts discovered in the 20th century, there is one of the Gospels, therefore, theoretically for the Gnostics, it stands in line with the four canonical Gospels from the Bible, the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, Mark, and John. And there exists a Gospel, which is a Gospel in which basically Jesus speaks about the seven levels of the being, the seven layers, and basically he describes the seven chakras and the universe is the levels of consciousness pertaining to them. That, in a Christian text, which more or less addresses to the masses, it's as close as the masses ever would come to the initiation, to being initiated in something which is esoteric. The same thing is valid about Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita is a sort of semi-esoteric text, in Bhagavad Gita we find things which are purely yogic, by the yogis, for the yogis, initiation, esoteric things which need to be explained and analyzed. And at the same time you find the typical Hindu story which is for everybody and which refers mostly to morality, to ethics, to dharma, to karma, to the things which are valued in the regular society. That's why Bhagavad Gita is a text which at the same time had the admiration of Yogananda, Aurobindo, Ramakrishna, Shivananda and generally great yogis. And at the same time, Aurob I'm sorry, uh, Bhagavad Gita is a text which is more or less known by every Hindu. But the Hindus don't know it so much from the yoga standpoint. The Hindus know it more like the story 
about Krishna and Arjuna and the teachings of Krishna. And the, from, in that text you find, of course, gems, spiritual statements, like when Jesus says, if your right hand disturbs you from reaching the kingdom of heaven, chop it off because it's better to reach to the kingdom of heaven without your right hand than not to reach there at all. And such statement, while it can be interpreted in a very yogic way, it represents a principle of evolution. It represents a principle of the universe, after all. Nevertheless, the common Christian who does not necessarily understand the chakras, the bodies, the laws of resonance and of energy and all these things, still the common Christian can get from this statement a great determination, a great religious zeal, because those are words of Jesus and they can be interpreted on several levels. There is a superficial exoteric level where everybody understands it in a simplified way and then there are deeper levels in which the meanings grow deeper and deeper. It's the same thing with Bhagavad Gita. In Bhagavad Gita you can take the face story, you can take the story at the face value, like this is what Krishna did with Arjuna, this is approximately what he taught him. And then when you start reading between the lines, you have a deeper story, you have principles of yoga, you have esoteric teachings to a large extent. So it depends who reads Bhagavad Gita and what sort of understanding do they have. In Bhagavad Gita you find a story for everybody and you find an initiation for the yogis. It's one of the texts which is written on several layers of understanding. This makes it exceptional. That's why we analyze it here. I'm not uh, inclined to comment for you a simple text of Hindu spirituality if it doesn't have in it indications of yoga, the spirit of yoga, the practice of yoga. That's what we are here for. Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, who was at the same time inclined towards yoga, kriyas, purification and many other things, called Bhagavad Gita the Bible of the Hindus on account of the fact that there is almost no Hindu in India who doesn't know of Bhagavad Gita. It's perhaps the most universally accepted text of spirituality in the whole of India. While technically this is a Vaishnava text because God is presented under the form of Krishna and Krishna in the history of India is one of the ten avatars of Vishnu. We'll get back to that. Nevertheless, this text is quoted freely by the Shaivas, it is mentioned by the yogis of India, it is even commented, it is even given commentaries by great tantric masters like Abhinava Gupta or like by great Vedantic teachers like Shankaracharya and therefore this text is a sort of omnipresent text. It is somehow the backbone of Indian spirituality condensed in one single text. This text summoned or deserved, earned the honest spiritual appreciation, admiration of many of the Westerners in the last two, three centuries ever since it started being translated and known to the West. People as different as Aldous Huxley, the philosopher and the anthropologist, as Albert Einstein, the scientist, people as different as Carl Gustav Jung, the psychologist, 
or Ralph Waldo Emerson, the American philosopher and uh, thinker, people as different as Hermann Hesse, the writer, or Oppenheimer, the father of the Manhattan Project, the father of the atom bomb in USA, people of such different walks of life, they admired deeply, they read and they quoted often the Bhagavad Gita, being called by some of them in the 20th century, there was an expression that Bhagavad Gita is a manual for mankind. It's a sort of handbook of humanity. It's the manual of mankind. Because as you are going to see, besides the very precious teachings of Krishna and the whole situation, Bhagavad Gita brings to us a message from previous yugas, from previous epochs of the humanity, and it brings us something very, very deep about the human soul, about the situations in which we are. This great manual for mankind is classically composed of 700 versets, not verses, but versets. For those of you who know the Bible language, a verset is a two-verse expression. It's a verset. That is what in Sanskrit is called a shloka and not a sutra. The sutras are short one-liners. The shlokas are two-liners. Like in the Bible, the Bible is written in versets. Bhagavad Gita is also written in versets, unlike the Yoga Sutra, for example, and it is written in no less than 700 versets. There exists a commentary of Shankaracharya and other subsequent great authors who claim that in the old days this text even had a bit of a longer version of 745 versets, no esoteric secret is mentioned about that. It's simply that the edition, the editing work of the text was different. So this text, either in 700 verses or 745 verses, is a pretty long text. Actually, when you take a translation of it, you would easily find there almost 100 pages of text. Compare the Bhagavad Gita with the Yoga Sutra. The Yoga Sutra of Patanjali has 180 sutras, approximately. 180 one-liners, while Bhagavad Gita has 1,400 lines. It is almost 10 times bigger than the Yoga Sutra, which says two things. Either in Bhagavad Gita you can find way more information and it will take us 10 times the time it took to comment the Yoga Sutra, which is not quite true. Or Bhagavad Gita is written in a different style because it's not an esoteric text written by yogis for other yogis. It's a sort of a, it's part of an epic, it's part of a novel, it is written for the masses, and therefore Bhagavad Gita it is written in a much more explicit way verbose sometimes, abounding in details, and that's why it is not as concentrated and as difficult to distillate as, Bhagavad, as uh, the Yoga Sutra. Yoga Sutra is aphoristic. Each one of those one-liners, each one of those sutras, you have to sit and meditate deeply on them because many, many meanings are hidden between those few words which compose a sutra. This does not mean that the Bhagavad Gita 
cannot be meditated upon. It can and it should. I have read about instrumental studies on yogis, medical studies on yogis, in which a yogi in the old days, in the 1950s, was managing to stop his heartbeat while doing Udhyana Bandha, while doing some pranayama technology, and he was doing this in his mind, devotedly repeating a verse from the Bhagavad Gita. He was just saying exactly as Jesus says, Blessed be the merciful, for they shall inherit the world. And you would think about this, and this would give you goosebumps, and it would give you great emotions, and you would do that during your prayer or yoga exercises, repeating this one sentence from Jesus again and again like a mantra, exactly in the same way Indian yogi was repeating a sentence which had a great emotional meaning for him, and by repeating that verse from Bhagavad Gita, coupled with some extreme pranayama exercises, he was managing every time to stop his heart for abnormally long periods of time. Therefore, it's not that you cannot use Bhagavad Gita for meditation as a mantra, as a sort of text of power full of meanings and full of spiritual advice. But when you look at style, Yoga Sutra is compressed, concentrated, while Bhagavad Gita is written at a much more relaxed pace, Bhagavad Gita has a story to tell. It's more like a narration than like an aphoristical memento, like a text for memorization, which Yoga Sutra was. And those 700 verses of Bhagavad Gita are divided in 18 chapters. You can make the math for yourself, see approximately how many of those shlokas, of those verses in a chapter. And actually this great text, 18 chapters, 700 verses, is nothing else but a part, a chapter, a book, because it has 18 chapters, let's not call it a chapter. It's a book with 18 chapters, but it's a book from the greatest, definitely the greatest in size, and one of the great pillars of Indian culture, the legendary Mahabharata. When you learned in school about Indian early culture, and that's probably something which you learned in early history classes in primary school, it's not possible that your history book should not have mentioned that the Indian culture relies culturally on two documents. And those two documents are two epic forms of literature, exactly as Greece has the Iliad and the Odyssey, the poems of Homerus about Ulysses who goes to the war of Troy and comes back home on a very convoluted road. Exactly in the same way, but without being directly related to each other, the Indian foundation of culture is based on two great epics, the first of them older called Ramayana, the story about Rama and Sita and the demon Ravana and all the people in that character, and the second, the Mahabharata. It is very significant that India, in Hindi and in its language, Indians call India Bharat. Bharat is the official name of India, so Mahabharat is like the great India 
It's the great epic about the history of India. Actually, Vyasadeva, who is the alleged author, again alleged because it cannot be demonstrated fully, Vyasadeva says it's not only the history of India, it's the history of the world because the Brahmins of India thought that the Aryan civilization of India to which Mahabharata belongs is actually the source of the humanity, of the modern humanity. They are the preservers of the spirituality, of the Dharma, of the Sanatana Dharma, the eternal Dharma from other cosmic cycles. And because of this, it's like the Aryans brought the spirituality in our Yuga. And from there, it divided in several religions, like in the myth of the Tower of Babel, that there was once one common spirituality. Indians call Hinduism Sanatana Dharma, the eternal Dharma, which means the religion before the religions, the religion before the appearance of religions. There existed a sort of eternal Dharma, a sort of Dharma based on fundamental principles, exactly as we see that in yoga, we have Yama and Niyama, which is not a religious morality, but which is rather a morality based on common sense, on ecology, on harmony, on the laws of nature. There exists the statement that Ramayana and Mahabharata come from that ancient source, and that makes a very, very big difference. Um, Mahabharata is a huge text. If you would want to read the unexpurged edition of Mahabharata, prepare to read something like 8 to 12 volumes, thick, big volumes, depending on the edition, because some editors put two volumes together, and thus the books are fewer. But it's a, it's, it's a, it's a river of a novel. It's not just Ramayana. It's pretty simple. It's a one-volume text. But Mahabharata is gigantic, and many people realize when trying to read it that this text is very, very different from anything you know or you have seen today. And I'm going to explain in a minute that, because otherwise there are things in the Bhagavad Gita which are very, very hard to understand. The, in the Mahabharata in general, and especially in this book from Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, the teacher is none other than the legendary Krishna among the godmen of India, among the divine personalities of India. There is probably nobody as famous and as beloved as Krishna. You have heard our Bhajan Kirtan team singing a mantra, a clear, consecrated, a famous mantra to Krishna. And there are quite a few others as well, Gopala and other, and other mantras. But there have been other godmen of India, from Abhinavagupta to Shankaracharya, and from Rishi Agastya till you name it, till Patanjali. There are no famous devotional mantras for Agastya. There are some mantras in the Vedic culture, but of very little renown. Like in among all the living heroes of Hinduism in the centuries and thousands of years, there are mantras for Rama, there are mantras for others, but nobody is as beloved 
and at the same time as controversial, I dare say, as Krishna. Krishna is definitely a huge character in the Indian culture and to understand India without understanding Krishna is very, very difficult. Actually, the birthday of Krishna is celebrated just one day away from the birthday of India. The National Day of India and the birthday of Krishna are both of them falling under the astrological sign of the lion. And this also tells us a lot of things about the personality of Krishna, the spiritual avatar. I do not have the time to explain here. I do that in our metaphysical workshop. I hope one day until that book will come to be published, to be printed, you will have the possibility to listen to one of those metaphysical workshops, which are a very important thing in this school. And in the metaphysical workshop, I take much more time to explain what an avatar is, because it's one of the very sensitive stories in spirituality, and especially in Indian spirituality, although it addresses equally to Jesus, for example, who according to the Hindu definition of an avatar is an avatar an extraordinary avatar. And because of this, um, I here I can only give the very, very extremely brief demonstration or definition, which says that avatara, which literally in translation from Sanskrit means descent, like descending, it's a descent. Avatara means a divine descent on planet Earth. It means that not a Tom, Dick and Harry, but a divine consciousness, decides, although it is not obliged by the laws of karma and by the laws of reincarnation, decides out of its own free will to incarnate on earth to do some divine activities. As you are going to see in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna himself defines himself as an avatar and defines very clearly why he is incarnated on planet earth at that particular historical time. Krishna basically shows that this is not only an issue of Arjuna and of his brothers, it's his own problem. He is there at the time when this was written because he has a mission. He is a divine spirit. He is God incarnated on earth with a mission to shake humanity a little bit out of its slumber and to bring a renewal in the human spirituality, in the human spirit. Therefore, um, there are many things to say about Mahabharata, and I will have to say a few words about the plot, so you understand where this chapter, where this book comes in. But it suffices saying that Mahabharata, although scholars today say that it was written somewhere between the 5th century BC, that's about the time of Buddha and Patanjali and some scholars even say it may have been written in the first century AD. So like there is a sixth century approximation. We don't even know exactly when Bhagavad Gita was written. And the author of Bhagavad Gita is one of the most famous Sanskrit authors, one of the pillars of Sanskritology and Sanskrit col uh, culture of all India and I'm talking about Vyasa, Vyasa Deva, Veda Vyasa. He has many nicknames, but the main name is Vyasa. And 
again, you can realize that his own date is not known. We don't know if Vyasa lived in the 5th century BC or in the 1st century AD. So unclear the Indian history is. But however, this story which Vyasa writes, the Mahabharata, this enormous story, is actually referring to events which are a legend, a myth. So they are not events from 25 centuries ago. They are events which allegedly are something like 45, centu 45 centuries ago. Uh, 45, like 2,000 years before Vyasa. So that would mean like way more, more than 2,000 years before Christ. There are authors who go as far as saying that the events described in Mahabharata and therefore in Bhagavad Gita might have happened 3,000, 3,500 up till 4,500 years before Christ. That's in extremely far antiquity. It is at the time of the first generations of Egyptian pharaohs. It is way before the time of Moses and his covenant with God. It is before the time of the Sumerians and Babylonians. It is in times of Zoroaster and early cuneiform writing. There are, it's this in times, it's almost in the times of Mohenjo-Daro, the Indus Valley civilization. This is something which comes from long, long time ago. Because of this historical evidence about the events described in Mahabharata and Bhagavad Gita is extremely scarce. For example, in Bhagavad Gita, or in Mahabharata, better said, a whole battle is described, a huge battle which involved lots of Indian kingdoms and states. But that battle historically cannot be identified. The, that battlefield is called Kurukshetra, the field of the Kurus. And somewhere 80, 90 kilometers north of New Delhi, there exists a village, a small city called Kurukshetra, which today is venerated by the Hindus like that's the place of the great battle of Kurukshetra from the Bhagavad Gita, from the Mahabharata. However, if you'd ask historians, archaeologists, scientists, they say it's pure allegation. There is absolutely no demonstration, exactly as we cannot demonstrate that Jesus Christ was actually born on the 25th of December. And that's simply a convention, a common humanity convention that we celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December for a variety of reasons. Exactly in the same way, Kurukshetra exists or not, is in the place of modern village of Kurukshetra or not, history is completely surpassed by this issue. And that's why nobody can really demonstrate the existence of Krishna. There are people who even deny the existence of Jesus 2,000 years ago. What to say about the existence of Krishna 6,000 years ago? It's more like a myth for many, many people. And the, the fact that Krishna was a ruler of a kingdom himself and blah, blah, and all the rest. That's why here we are dealing with the specific things in which, for example, Swami Vivekananda of India, he even said, why do people fret if, Bhagavad, if the war of Kurukshetra really happened or if it really happened in that place or in some other place? This is just some materialistic scientific skepticism. 
It has nothing to do with the value of the teachings given in Bhagavad Gita. And Swami Vivekananda, as a spiritual teacher, he was interested in the value of the teachings, not in the analysis. You know, was Jesus born on the 25th of December or on the 4th of January or, as I heard somebody say, in the month of September or God knows? Who cares? Would you really care if Jesus was born in September or in December? Only if you are a splitter of the hair, only if you are a perfectionistic scholar, would you be interested in that? Because much, 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 much more important than the actual birth date of Jesus is the message and the actions of that person. This is indeed what matters. So it's the same. The Hindus never lay value on accuracy, on historical accuracy. It is in this place or it is in that place or it is in this century or it is in that century. That's for the scholars to waste time with. What the Hindus were concerned with was the spiritual teachings, the message which was contained there. That's why through necessity, Bhagavad Gita is a text which belongs to another big text, to the Mahabharata, which is necessarily very ambiguous in terms of scholarship and science. I leave to those of you who are inclined into science to find more about that um, for, if you like, research and facts. And to see the dilemma that until now scholars cannot agree on these things. Fact is that in the Mahabharata, in the Bhagavad Gita, it is written in the time, allegedly, in the time of the existence incarnated as a human being on earth of a great spirit of India, Krishna, one of the greatest avatars of Indian history, a divine teacher, a spirit from above come with a mission, and Krishna is in the wider spectrum of Hinduism considered to be one of the ten avatars of Vishnu, one of the facets of God, one of the aspects of God in Hinduism is called Vishnu, as in Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva. And Vishnu, the protector, the preserver, is a, a God form which has in a cosmic cycle ten incarnations. Out of those ten incarnations, nine have already happened and one is yet to come. The last incarnation of Vishnu is prophesied as will be called Kalki Avatara and Kalki Avatara will be the Avatara of Vishnu which will signal the end of Kali Yuga, the end of the present epoch on earth and the end of the Maha Yuga and the beginning of a new Yuga. Out of those known pre nine previously existing incarnations, the seventh incarnation of Vishnu which is supposed to have happened some 6,000 to 7,500 years ago is Rama. And the next one, the number eight, is Krishna. That's why for those of you who never heard this one, remember that for the Indian mysticism, Rama and Krishna are one and the same. They represent the same Vishnu incarnated at 1,500, 2,000 years distance from each other two different times in the history of India, in the history of humanity, for saving the humanity, for impelling the humanity on a spiritual path. That's why when you sing Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, then you sing Hare Rama, Hare Rama. Because Rama and Krishna, for all the Hindus, are one and the same divine person, 
only manifested in two different bodies at two different historical epochs. Krishna is precisely this person and Krishna is a person that you are going to like or not. It's the same as with Jesus. Remember that many people did not like Jesus because Jesus showed them as being sinners, because Jesus showed them as being impure, because Jesus was a thorn in their eye or rib, because Jesus exposed them as being hypocrites or liars or greedy people or others and others. And the people who were under the fire of Jesus, they didn't like Jesus at all. They simply said, this man is possessed by the devil because he was firing straight at them. And the others were pleased. The other people loved Jesus. It's the same with Krishna. Krishna is not a comfortable character because Krishna is an avatar and he has no time to waste time. He is not mincing with his words. He is not uh, politically correct. He is not soothsaying. He is sometimes very rude and very politically incorrect. And Krishna is uh, like Jesus says. You know, people ask Jesus, why do you behave in such a provocative way? And Jesus said, until I came, people did whatever they wanted. When I came, it's time to separate the weed from the wheat. The useful part of the cereal from the parasite part of the cereal. Like we separate white from black. Until now, the white and the black existed together. Virtues and sinners lived in the society in a symbiosis together. Now I came and I have a sieve in my hands. I'm going to sift the society and separate the white from the black. So Jesus automatically is bound to produce conflict. And he says, don't think I came to bring peace. For I came to bring a sword. It's the same thing about Krishna. Krishna doesn't bring peace. Krishna brings a sword. As much as he is a Hindu, non-violent man of spirit, man of God, nevertheless Krishna is ready to produce strife and conflict for the truth to triumph, for the divine truth to triumph. And that's why Krishna is many things which people don't like. Krishna is not conventional. Krishna steps over all the limits of the religion. Krishna does acts which are inconceivable in terms of morality and ethics. Krishna basically allows theft, lie and all sorts of other things to happen under the umbrella of Godhead. So Krishna is like ready to go the full Monty, to any length is he ready to go to fulfill his mission. And Krishna makes you ask yourself if the dictum of Machiavelli is not right, which says the goal excuses the means. Like to reach a goal, you almost would be allowed to use any means whatsoever. Krishna, therefore, for many people is uncomfortable. If you are one of these politically correct glasshouse plants people with no Manipura, who as soon as you have to watch a series like uh, 24 with Kida Sutherland, 
they have to write in the beginning. There is a lot of graphic violence in this movie. Viewer discretion is advised, which they never wrote 30 years ago when people were tougher. They never felt the need to write that kind of shit on a movie because some old lady is going to get some higher blood pressure because of seeing some blood in, the, in a series, in a television series. Krishna is the kind of person who will give you a higher blood pressure. He is going to provoke you to the bone and for many people Krishna is not comfortable. He is not the kind of person who says what you want to hear and very often he does forbidden things. The whole story of the life of Krishna is a hubbub, it's a big scandal, it's a ado. Starts with being one of these children abandoned, put in a basket like Moses or whoever, and left on a river. There are many, many parables and legends embedded there as well. And Krishna, when he becomes an adult, he participates in war, although he is a man of God. And thus, you would expect him to be non-violent to the letter, which, by the way, he is not. And Krishna is a womanizer. He made love with a thousand gopis. Krishna being a higher caste, either a man of God, Avatara, which would make him a Brahmin, or at least the king of an Indian kingdom, which would make him a Kshatriya, the upper two castes of the Indian society. A Kshatriya or a Brahmin, 4,000 years ago, in that caste-regulated system, was completely not supposed to have sex with a shepherd woman. Shepherd women were from the lower castes of the society, and their Kshudras or others, they were farmer castes, and they were at the bottom of the society. There was no way in which a Kshatriya or a Brahmin would have sex with a cow shepherd. And Krishna broke that rule not once, abundantly. He is the Don Juan, he is the Casanova of India. He did it with more than a thousand gopis and when finally he established himself into a divine relationship, he did it with Radha, the famous legendary lover of Krishna, with one little obstacle to it. Radha was the married wife of another dude who basically in the equation got screwed. Nobody really tells us what happened to the abandoned husband of Radha if maybe he went into a barn and hanged himself out of jealousy or out of depression. Fact is, Krishna snatched his wife and they both became the immortal divine lovers of India. So here we have a warmonger, a liar, a cheater, a womanizer, an adulterer or a marriage breaker, and the list would continue. It's not even as simple as that. And that's why this Krishna is either like Robin Hood. You have to love him. He's a complete outlaw. But he is such a sympathetic outlaw. You can't stop like Robin Hood. Robin Hood is an outlaw. And everybody loves Robin Hood. Although he stole, he killed, he did all sorts of things. He did it for a good cause. Well, so is Krishna. Krishna is the Robin Hood and Don Juan and many others of India before time. And that's why he is a very difficult to swallow character. Moreover, Krishna, like Jesus, 
is a man of dharma. For him, the only thing that matters utmostly in this world is the will of God, the righteousness, the dharma. Exactly like in the time of Moses. Moses speaks in the name of righteousness. And therefore, if you are not on the side of righteousness, Krishna is completely against you. For example, Rama, his predecessor, his previous incarnation, Parashurama, Rama of the Axe, as I said in the Shambhala lecture, one of the missions of Parashurama was to destroy, which means to kill with an axe, with a battle axe, to kill a whole generation, family, clan of Kshatriyas that have gone wrong. Like he was Terminator. Parashurama, the Terminator. He was sent from above to do a variety of things, out of which one was termination of a whole caste. That means serial killing. It means tens, if not hundreds or thousands of killings. Indian religion is very comfortable with that. Sure, Parashurama killed the bad guys. What's wrong with killing the bad guys? The bad guys have to be eliminated because they are a cancer on the face of the society. And the faster they are eliminated, the more healthy the society is. That is why... Remember that Krishna comes from the same seed and it is this hardcore part of Hinduism which simply says, uh, when you are a demon, you deserve to be exterminated. Like there is no mercy for the demons. Shiva is a hunter. He goes on dancing and wherever he sees a demon, he splashes him out of existence. There is no redemption. There is no correctional juvenile or anything for the demons. The demons have to be sent back to hell, period. This is Dharma. It's like this is how the ancient Hindus saw the righteous society, the will of God. They believed in capital punishment galore. Like they were not uh, holding their horses in these kinds of things. That's why I say again and again, both Krishna as a character and this time of Hinduism and Mahabharata and therefore Bhagavad Gita, they come from a very different world and that's why some of their statements are going to rock you. Some of their statements are going to disturb you profoundly and maybe even to irritate you because they come from an extremely puritanic, hardcore, old-fashioned type of society in which there is nothing more valuable than the Dharma and the Dharma must be upheld at any cost. And that is why, uh, remember that Krishna may be a very difficult to swallow or understand character for modern people where we live in a world which is full of a Dharma, of non-religiousness, of non-righteousness in the fundamental terminology which was used in those days. And Bhagavad Gita is nothing and then an 18 chapter, a 700 verses, uh, 80 to 100 pages, dialogue between Krishna himself and the Pandava prince Arjuna. Pandava is the name of the family. There were a number of five princes called the Pandavas. 
and one of them, the arch warrior of them, is called Arjuna. Arjuna is a name which in India ever since remained preserved for two reasons. One, if you are very white in your skin, as you know people in this part of the world and generally southern people like Mediterranean, North Africa and others, they are not at all like the modern democratic European and North American society in which the color of the skin doesn't matter. These people were deeply racistic, not necessarily in a negative meaning of the word, but they were deeply aware of racial DNA differences between people. That's another old-fashioned, politically incorrect thing. And for them, white meant more spiritual because the white people were the Aryans who came from Northern Europe or wherever, and they came to Kashmir and North India, and there they met with the Dravidians, with the dark-skinned colored Indians from the south of India and Sri Lanka. And this, this mixture between Aryans and Dravidians is what makes today's India, roughly speaking. And the Aryans are the ones who came with the meditation, with the metaphysics, with God, with Krishna, with Dharma, with Arjuna, with this. So, unfortunately, in Indian, unfortunately for those who have qualms about this, that is, um, in Indian culture, it happens in Thailand as well, and uh, you know very well, probably, um, this thing with the color of the skin is a very, very significant thing, and the whiteness is considered beauty. And Arjun, Arjun as in Hindi, the Hindi always cuts the final A, so in Sanskrit it's Arjuna, in Hindi it's Arjun, Arjun. Arjun or Arjuna was very white-skinned. He was probably the most blonde of all five brothers. He was a real Aryan. And he was a great warrior, which among others meant extremely fit physically, like a good body, a good strong body. Until today, Western men who go to India and they frequent the company of some Babas or Gurus from India, if they ask to take a Hindu name, the lack of creativity of those people or the uh, resort or resorting to the tradition all the time makes that I have seen at least five, I think, until now, Westerners who were blonde, white-skinned and bigger than the average bloke called Arjuna. Like that's the universal name which you get if you are big and white and well-shaped. So Arjuna is the archetypal warrior in the Indian culture. And there are some astrological speculations that each one of the five brothers represents a planet, and then Arjuna represents the planet Mars, because that's the planet of war, and he is the arch-warrior and all the rest. There can be many, many symbolic things, and I will get there in a second, but the point is that the whole of Bhagavad Gita is a dialogue teachings, questions and answers between the Pandava prince Arjuna, who represents his five brothers in this dialogue, the good guys, and Krishna, who is a sort of divine teacher caught between the hammer and the anvil in this conflict. And all this happens on the brink of a terrible war called the Kurukshetra war, the war from the plains of the Kuru, which is the core of the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata basically says that this conflict 
is the ending of a yuga and the beginning of another yuga. We don't know exactly how that synchronizes with the flood of Noah. We don't know exactly how that synchronizes with the sinking of Atlantis, which in Western metaphysics, those two events are each one of them the borderline of the yugas. The crossing from the second yuga to the third yuga, some 12,500, 13,000 years ago, is the sinking of Atlantis. The flood of Noah, some 6,200 years ago, is the going from the Dvapara Yuga to the Kali Yuga, between the third yuga and the fourth yuga, the present yuga in which we live and which many people believe will end soon. And therefore, we don't know if this time historically fits with the flood of Noah. And in India, they didn't have a flood like in the Middle East, but they had Krishna coming and wiping the table with the Kurukshetra events. We don't know if this is simultaneous with Atlantis and at the time when Atlantis hit the bottom of the ocean, at the same time in India this was happening. Historically, it's extremely difficult to define anything because all these things look like immemorial, like very old. But the point being that every time when a yuga is finished, the yuga, consider a yuga for those of you who never heard that lecture about the yugas and the cycles of humanity as known in India and Tibet. Consider the yugas as seasons, like the seasons of the year, spring, summer, autumn, winter. And when one season ends, the next one starts with the difference that when every season starts, the energy is fresh. Exactly as when one astrological sign ends, and the energy is a bit tired towards the end of the astrological sign. And then the new astrological sign comes and it's young, fresh, enthusiastic. So always the energy is skewed a little bit towards the beginning because the beginning is stronger. So when Treta Yuga, I'm sorry, when Dvapara Yuga, the third of them, ends and Kali Yuga starts, the Dvapara Yuga is, is tired and worn out. And Kali Yuga starts with enthusiasm. But isn't Kali Yuga a worse Yuga than Dvapara Yuga? Yes, but for a period of 100 or 200 years, it's like this. It's like the Dvapara Yuga goes low and then there is a short revival. And then it continues going low and it goes much lower than before. But for a period of time, exactly at the junction, there is a sort of a fresh start, like it is said in the Bible that God produced the flood of Noah because humanity was becoming truly perverted. And simply God decided to drown them all, wipe the table and give a fresh start. And that fresh start was with a man who was allegedly nice. Noah was one of the righteous ones. That's why he was saved and he was promoted to the next yuga. Like he was the bridge to the next yuga. And when Noah started, you can be sure that in the first hundred years after the flood, Noah was very righteous because he had seen the wrath of God and he was himself a righteous person anyway. And therefore for a hundred, two hundred, three hundred years, people did things right. And then of course because their seed was getting more and more depleted and because it was Kali Yuga and because more and more lousy spirits was, were born as children in those families, 
it went lower and today Kali Yuga is much worse than what people were before the flood of Noah. But there exists a short moment of revival. This, this passing is exactly illustrated by the Mahabharata. Krishna comes in the end of Dvapara Yuga when the last rulers, the Kauravas, Duryodhana and uh, the king, Drihastana, is perverted severely. And instead of them, he replaces them with a new dynasty of kings, which are the Pandavas, Arjuna and his brothers, Yudhishthira, the oldest brother, and all the others. And these are supposed to be better people, more righteous, more in attunement with the Dharma of God. But of course, even Arjuna and these people, they also go rotten in time, with time. Only that this intervention simply marks the shifting from one yuga to another. And it's exactly like a drowning man that swallows water. And every time when he swallows water, he drowns more and more. But every time when he starts swallowing some air, he gets a fresh gust of air and there is a hope he's going to live again. He's swimming and he swallows some water and then he comes to the surface and he makes... <gasps> and then you say, oh, he's breathing, he will not die. This gust of air saves the things for 30 seconds and then the man starts drowning again more than before. So it's the same thing with the yugas. It's like drowning deeper and deeper, but there is a short revival at the crossing point. That's exactly what Krishna does. Krishna comes to finish off in India, allegedly, the Dvapara Yuga and to start the Kali Yuga. And temporarily, for a period of 100, 200, 500 or 100 years, he, he helps the good guys. He brings forth a more righteous ruler. He replaces the old, rotten, selfish, egocentric warrior rulers with rulers that are more respectful to spirituality, more mindful of God and of Dharma, and therefore people who will represent a more spiritual leadership. <clears throat> so this is the famous conflict between the Pandavas and the Kauravas. There are two groups of brothers coming from two brothers, brother kings, and one of them takes the throne, but the other ones are done injustice. The Kauravas, which are said by the text to be a hundred brothers, which is unrealistic, unless that man had at least 10-15 wives to produce a hundred offspring. The Kauravas are the bad guys who are going away. And then there is a group of five decent brothers, the Pandavas, which have been treated unjustly. They have been persecuted. And at some point, according to the laws of universal justice, their time is coming. And when their time is coming, they come and ask for justice. And because the Kauravas wouldn't let go, the only way to actually get some justice is by doing war. This war, in the vision of Krishna, and in the vision of Mahabharata, and in the vision of Vyasa, and in the vision of the Indian culture, is closest that Hinduism comes to the concept of jihad. It's a sort of a holy war. The bad people, unspiritual, demon-like, they hold the power, and the right people who are dear to God, 
they are persecuted and they are mocked and they are made injustice. And therefore, things have to be set right. But that requires a holy war. And the holy war is a very politically incorrect event because it means slaughter. It means confrontation. And this dialogue is a dialogue before that war precisely because Arjuna, which is the warrior leader of his brothers, is in a huge dilemma, as I will explain and as you will read in the text with me, because his major dilemma is to do this or not to do this. Both options are terrible. And he is caught between the hammer and the anvil. And on one hand, he has to do the right thing. But on the other hand, he profoundly hates to do the right thing. And thus, he is in a dilemma. Okay, so let us continue with our introductory concepts, introductory analysis of the Bhagavad Gita. As I said before the break, Bhagavad Gita is part of Mahabharata, and Mahabharata is about the change of the Yugas, and at that change of the Yugas, the conflict between two royal houses, one rotten, old, decadent, the Kauravas, and one emerging, good, spiritual, God-fearing, you would say, the Pandavas. Any one of you who would bother to read not a re-edited edition, but the original text of the, Baga, of the Mahabharata and implicitly the Bhagavad Gita will be surprised to see how different that text is from today. How very different. I don't know if anybody in this room has already found or will ever found in this lifetime the stamina, the perseverance, the, that sort of consciousness to read the Mahabharata. Everybody says Mahabharata, right? But did you read it? To read the Mahabharata is a real feat because it's so different. It's like when you read it, it's like a science fiction novel about a long gone civilization with very different values and very different principles and people almost can't understand it. In Mahabharata, as I often give this example in the lecture on Satyam, in the first level of yoga, on truthfulness, Arjuna comes into burges in the room where his mother is weaving some cotton, and he says, Mom, guess what I want today? And she says, whatever you want, you should share it with your other four brothers. And he says, Mom, it's not possible because it's a woman. I earned the... the the, my wife as a, no, it's, it's like, it was one of those famous contests where the champion gets the princess. And his mother says, sorry, but the karma sneaked in a very perverted way in our lives. And, but what has been said, has been said. Like, how many of you would ever imagine somebody in the last 500 years of Earth history any event like this in any culture from India to North America and from Europe to Africa that somebody says a thing which leads to a very unusual conclusion to say the least and the mother simply says I'm sorry I can't take my word back yeah but it was a joke it was a remark given out like this out of a slate of hand you just 
you spoke before you thought even. Even so, a word once spoken cannot be taken back. That represents a very weird consciousness, a very perfectionistic, very high consciousness. It represents something which is related to Vishuddha Chakra. It represents a very, very peculiar state of consciousness. And the whole Mahabharata is written about people and events who are there in that zone. So like you read it and you, you fail to identify. Like every woman who reads this would kind of scoff and say, stupid woman, I would never do that to my son. If my son would come in the room and say that, and I would say that, and then he would say, Mom, you don't even know what I'm talking about, it's my wife. Then I would say, sure, I, I, I just said a stupid word. Not the mother of Arjuna. The Kunti, the mother of Arjuna, she simply said, I said this, it has to be that way. And thus, Draupadi, she became the wife of five husbands. She got married to all the five of them in the principle of polyandry, that a woman can have five husbands, as in those days in India, both polygamy and polyandry and other sexual practices were accepted norm. And that's why this is a text coming from a different yuga and with a very different mentality. You are going to see that there are plainly things which you don't understand and even things which you would think that they are stupid things which you would think that they are irritating, upsetting, politically incorrect. And yet the people who wrote this and the people from the time where this came, they did not consider it artificial at all. They considered that that's the way Dharma works. That is why keep an open mind. And since I am almost sure that nobody will bother to read the full of Mahabharata, being such a long, tedious text, I at least give you the suggestion that in India they published Mahabharata as a cartoon. It's a 12-volume cartoon. So since you come from the world of Captain America and Superman, you probably can still read cartoons. And that's a much lesser intellectual effort. And lucky, lucky, Peter Brooks, the great British filmmaker, relying on it like on a theater, made a sort of television theater called Mahabharata, which is a five hours and a half, six hour long production. That's a real long movie. Extremely well made, which is of course a very condensed version because you cannot put even in six hours of movie 12 volumes from a book, 12 written volumes. But that's the closest you can get to understand the Mahabharata. I am asking that if you are interested in this, you should speak to the management of the school, to the organizers of events, and they can probably find a Sunday and a yoga hall with a television screen where those of you who are enthusiastic and can resist six hours in front of a television screen or with a lunch break in between, because we are in Kali Yuga and you need a lunch break, uh, then maybe uh, you want to see the Mahabharata. In the old days, five years ago, and when I was teaching in Rishikesh, Mahabharata was played almost every month on one of the Sundays. So important it is, and so good is that a chance for you to come close to 
understanding the big Mahabharata. It is my advice that those of you who are thrilled by Bhagavad Gita, by Krishna and by the ancient yugas and the core of the Sanatana Dharma, you should at least see the Peter Brooks movie on Mahabharata or read the cartoons or maybe one day even attempt to read the whole text of it. You'll see why I say attempt. It's not an easy undertaking. It's not an easy task. And in this text of Bhagavad Gita, which is a book from the Mahabharata, the main emerging idea seems to be, and that's what we quoted for mostly, is the idea of karma yoga. That there exists a yoga of action, and Arjuna, who is a king, not a mystic, remember the story from Shambhala, that there are two ways to reach Shambhala, there are two ways to reach God, one of them is to be a monk, and one of them is to be a knight. Arjuna is the knight. He is definitely not the monk. Krishna might be considered to be a monk, or because Krishna is fully developed spiritually, although even Krishna is apparently the king of a minor kingdom, and therefore Krishna is king and priest at the same time. Krishna is divine. Uh, he is the sum total of two. But um, otherwise, Arjuna being rather a knight than a monk, for him Dharma manifests as action in the world, as action in the society. And Krishna gives him a crash course in Karma Yoga just before the battle starts. Because Arjuna is getting despondent. Arjuna has lost his salt. Arjuna is discouraged. He is about to do horrifying things and Krishna has to clarify him about what is righteousness and what is not. And with a view to this, because Arjuna is a well-educated prince and not a commoner, Krishna has to really go deep and to explain to him the principles. And thus, Krishna basically explains Karma Yoga. But it's impossible to explain Karma Yoga without explaining a hundred other things to make it clear. And that's why Krishna touches everything from Sankhya philosophy to the three gunas, from the Jnana Yoga to the Bhakti Yoga. Krishna touches a lot of things from Indian spirituality, from Aryan, old Vedic spirituality. And Krishna therefore is touching a lot of things of the spiritual world. That is why we comment, starting with tonight on Bhagavad Gita, because Bhagavad Gita is a mine of information concerning spirituality. It's true that Karma Yoga is the most proeminent thing that we find there, but there is so much more, and that is for you to see. And therefore, all the other spiritual practices of yoga, forms of yoga, are equally extolled, but emphasis is definitely on karma yoga. This philosophy of preaching karma yoga fits so very well with Krishna because the philosophy behind Bhagavad Gita, as much as the Vedantins and other sects from India would scream, is purely, is basically a tantric philosophy. When we talk about karma yoga, this is a tantric philosophy. Because only a tantric view of the world says this world, prakriti, maya, samsara, this world has an importance.
Karma Yoga means do something in this world, do some action, such as Arjuna had to be a righteous king. Mahatma Gandhi gave independence, political independence to India. Somebody would say, what difference must, does it make that India is politically independent or not? Because India does not even exist. It's Maya. It's a dream in a dream. Who cares if in the dream called reality, India is independent or not? Like, why would you waste your life? Why would you put energy, intellect, work, emotions? Why would people have to lose their lives and spend years of their lives in pursuing a goal which is an illusion, which is a dream? That's why karma yoga makes absolutely no sense when you think that the world is an illusion. Because why would you want to change the illusion? It's a waste of time. It's a waste of resources. The illusion is illusion. And the only thing which you should do is you should become aware that it's an illusion and drop it. Turn your back to it. Be completely indifferent to it because it's an illusion. But Karma Yoga says you can change reality. Yeah, but if you change reality, it means you consider that reality has a certain degree of reality. And then it's not Maya. It's not Samsara. And that is a Tantric philosophy, which is a paradoxical thing which fully aligns with Krishna. Krishna is a Tantric man, and therefore you would expect Krishna, indeed, to teach Tantric doctrines. So Karma Yoga and Krishna are teaching a tantric message. It is, this text is valued by the Vedantins, by the Vaishnavas, by the Shaivas, by lots of ascetic schools. But it's funny that they make a sort of a compromise. It's a salad because many mystical schools of India which are non-tantric through their theology, they actually worship Bhagavad Gita and they venerate Bhagavad Gita when Bhagavad Gita is actually a text which is rather tantric in terms of metaphysics. Because it's about action in the world. It's about transforming the world. It's about karma yoga. It's about living in righteousness. It's about the dharma of a warrior king and of a warrior family. And as such it has nothing to do with pure Vedanta or with other renunciate schools of thinking of India. This also makes that uh, Bhagavad Gita is accepted by everybody, that both non-tantric but also tantric schools accept it. For example, Abhinava Gupta, one of the greatest exponents of Tantra in Kashmir in the 10th century, even wrote a commentary to the Bhagavad Gita. A commentary to Bhagavad Gita not made by a Vaishnava, by a worshipper of Vishnu, but by a Shaiva, master of Kashmir, in which he interprets it strictly from the standpoints of Trika and Kashmiri Shaivism. He interprets the sayings of Krishna and of Arjuna. That is why this makes Bhagavad Gita a very special text with a very wide audience infiltrated in all the layers and all the categories of the Hindu spirituality. That's why it is perhaps the most core, the most representative text of Indian spirituality. 
this text is so politically incorrect and Krishna is such a tough person that many authors, especially those who are Vedantin, they believe that this whole text can't be true. This thing that Krishna had sex with a thousand gopis and that he was the charioteer of Arjuna on the battlefield of Kurukshetra, according to those people, it must be an allegory. And then in that allegory, Krishna is God or Brahman. Those are the Vedantins. God is Brahman and Krishna is a symbol of God and Arjuna is a symbol of Atman, of the human soul that looks for Brahman. And the Kauravas are the Duryodhana and the other 99 brothers. They are the symbols of the darkness of the soul, the vices, all the immorality, all the sins. And the other Pandavas, Arjuna and the Pandavas, are the symbols of all the virtues of the human being. The Arjuna is the soul and Yudhishthira is the mind and Bhima is the vitality. All the qualities of the human being and that all the dialogue, all this is not the small jihad, the outer war. This is actually the greater jihad, the inner war between the forces of light and darkness in the human soul. Kurukshetra, according to those people, is not a place in India, it's the human soul which is the battlefield between the God and the devil. And God advised the human soul, Krishna talks to Arjuna, how to kill the vices, how to kill the sin, and how to become perfect and to wage war against your darkness, against your negativity. While this is a beautiful interpretation, and definitely it shows that Bhagavad Gita is a multi-layered text, and it can be read at various levels, it's so symbolic that it, it has as above, so below. It's an archetypal text which reflects the order of the universe. It's written in a state of superconsciousness. Nevertheless, no, not many agree to that. Proeminent Vedantin yogis or authors such as Gandhi, Swami Vivekananda of India, Yogananda Paramahamsa, they all of them claim that this is an allegory. All these texts should not be taken literally. However, to take just one, the famous Sri Aurobindo, who was definitely on the tantric side of the things with his Bhava Samadhi and superconscious, supramental consciousness, Sri Aurobindo claims that it's an abomination to think such a thing, and he simply says this reflects the Dharma in India. This reflects, again, reality. So he profoundly disagrees. Therefore, remember that even in the world of yoga, the opinions are split, and they are split simply because if you would say that Krishna had sex with a thousand women and still is God and enlightened and the God-man, that would open the door towards the statement that other people can go in the footsteps of Krishna and thus this will automatically legiferate or legitimize the sexual tantra. It's one of the best excuses for sexual tantra that if Krishna did this, he was no doubt sexually continent and automatically this means that 
if you do like Krishna, you can find your Radha <coughs> and you can reach enlightenment. And this would automatically become a sort of license to sexual Tantra. And in the Puritanic, Prudish, Vedantin-dominated Indian Hindu society, that would be too much. And that's why some authors simply preferred to go to the length of declaring Bhagavad Gita and Mahabharata not real. It's a parable. It's an allegory. Don't take it literally because these things didn't really happen and it's all a metaphor. It's like the parables of Jesus. So it's up to you to decide. The text is useful in both situations. The text is anyhow teaching us amazing spiritual things, but at the same time remember that one approach to it is more rough, like Krishna was the lion of God, Krishna was an untamed wild man of God, or you can take the cosmeticized version of it, in which all is a metaphor which talks about the inner struggle between our light and our darkness, which is a war, which is waging war to your own inner darkness. This is how Bhagavad Gita is structured, and it is my intention to start the evening by reading the first chapter, which is theoretically not a chapter of spiritual teachings. The voice of Krishna is not heard in this chapter. It's actually the chapter which introduces, which gives us the setting. And this first chapter, which is called the yoga of the despondency of Arjuna, there's no yoga to it. It's just called like this, because all the chapters are called the yoga of this, the yoga of that. It's simply setting the framework. And while most of it is descriptive, verbose, and very, very old-fashioned Hindu, Vedantic, Vedic type of thing, nevertheless, it is giving us a bit of atmosphere. And as you are going to see, the way these people ask the questions, the way these people think, already is flabbergasting and politically incorrect and far, far from today's world. And while the spiritual truths are immortal and they are valid for any human being at any time, nevertheless, uh, this is already a bit of a teaching. I don't know if I will manage to go through the full first chapter, which has something like 60 shlokas. I will read from one version of the text, a simple one with the commentary of Shankaracharya added to it, one of the better editions. And I will stop only to give the explanations. And it simply starts with the famous Indian ways of putting things. Dhritarashtra said, Dhritarashtra is the old king, the father of the 100 Kauravas, but he's blind. And that's why he cannot rule the kingdom. The kingdom is ruled by his older son called Duryodhana, and he's a sort of honorary king, old honorary king. And as such, he cannot participate to battle and to events. He is a sort of a mute witness to all this, blind witness. And as you are going to see, because he can't even see what's happening, he asks somebody, please tell me what's happening. And that person telling him what's happening is going to tell him about what Arjuna did and what Krishna said as a response to that. 
So it's all the text, all this chapter, all this book is like a description of a situation made by somebody to a blind king. Of course, if you choose to see that Bhagavad Gita is a highly symbolic and allegoric text, then it's very significant that the ruler of that kingdom is blind. Then the Duryodhana, the acting king and his father, Dhritarashtra, are actually representing the ego. The ego is the blind king of our kingdom. In every human being, our king is our ego. But our ego is a bad king, is a non-spiritual king. It is a blind king. So the allegory is perfect on that level as well. And he said, on the field of righteousness, on the field of Dharma, because this is a Dharma or a Jihad, on the grounds of Kurukshetra, marshaled for war, what did my men and the Pandavas do, O Sanjaya? Sanjaya is the messenger, is the observer, and he's asking his go-between, what happened, what did they do? He's asking for an account of the war. And then Sanjaya said, then, seeing the marshaled army of the Pandavas, the Pandavas are the five good guys, King Duryodhana approached the preceptor Drona and spoke the following words. Duryodhana is the leader of the bad brothers, the son of the blind king, and together with them there was the guru of arms of all of them, Drona. Drona was like the teacher of martial arts who taught all of them, the good ones and the bad ones, the art of war. O preceptor, he was his guru as a kshatriya, observe the immense army of Pandu's sons marshaled by your perceptive disciple, the son of Drupada. In this army are present brave and mighty bowmen equal to Bhima and Arjuna in battle. There are Yuyudhana, Virata and the mighty care warrior Drupada. And then he continues with a list of those present there. Drishtaketu, Chekitana, the heroic king Purujit of Kashi, Kuntiboja and Saibia, a hero among men, the valiant Yudhamanyu, the formidable Utamanjak, the son of Subhadra and the sons of Draupadi, all indeed great lords of mighty chariots. And for the distinguished leaders on our side, Note them, thou best of twice born. He is called twice born. I hope you know this is an English translation, of course. The word which is used is the word of initiation, diksha. Twice born means initiate. And twice born is exactly like Jesus who says, there is flesh which is born out of flesh and blood. And then there is spirit which is born out of Holy Spirit. And that is the mystery of the baptism. When you get baptized, you are born the second time. There is one biological birth from your mother, and then there is a divine birth from the Holy Spirit through the baptism of Jesus. Therefore, that means initiation. In India, they did not have baptism into Christ. They had initiation into spirituality. And the Guru was a great initiate, and therefore he calls him you twice born. Again, I'm going a bit quickly over the first chapter because there is a long list of names and weird stuff and really we don't want to stop here. We have much more important things as soon as Krishna 
starts speaking his teachings. That's why this I'm going quickly, buy an edition of Bhagavad Gita, read it and get into this. This is introductory stuff. And he says, I mentioned the leaders of my army to bring them to your notice. So he mentioned on the other side are those and those and those, and on our side are. And then Shloka 8 goes, Yourself, Drona, the Guru, is there, is one of the generals of the battle. Bhishma, Karna, Kripa, victorious in battles. Ashvatama, Vikarna, as well as Jayadartha, the son of Somadatta. Many other brave warriors too there are who have staked their lives for my sake and are armed in manifold ways, all adepts in war. It's a war of knights, it's a war of great heroes, all of them focused in one decisive act. This force of ours under the protection of Bhishma is inadequate, but the Pandava force protected by Bhima is quite adequate. Stationed at all points of entry and exit, with due regard to order, all of you must provide protection to Bhishma. Bhishma is like his utmost general of battle, for a reason which is surpassing the purpose of this text. Delighted him, delighting him, the grand old man of the Kurus, the mighty grandfather Bhishma, roaring aloud like a lion, blew his conch. In the old days, like today you can see in many Indian temples, they blow some trumpets which are made of huge conch shells, of seashells, and they blow them like didgeridus, making a special sound. And those sounds are ritual and they mark the beginning of some events. In the beginning of the battle, the heroes were coming and blowing their conch shells. Then... Conches, kettle drums, cymbals, double drums and trumpets were sounded together. That din was tumultuous. So in the beginning of the war, it's the haka thing. All the warriors show their muscle trying to frighten in advance their opponents. So it's a bit of a showing off. It's a bit of a cocky, frightening thing to blow the drums and to beat the drums and to blow the conch shells and the trumpets and the bigger the hubbub, like the more scary you are. Then, stationed in a large chariot, yoked with white steeds, Krishna and Arjuna blew their divine conches. Krishna blew the pancha janya, Arjuna the devadatta, Bhima of formidable action, blew the mighty paundra, and it continues, what do we see here? These conches had names. Their conches had names. Remember that the sword of King Arthur was called by a name. It was called Excalibur. Swords had names. Conches had names. In the old days, people lived in a sort of shamanic, archaic, animistic society in which even the objects which were used of great importance, they were considered as endowed with a soul. And Excalibur of King Arthur was a magic sword which said whoever was bearing Excalibur could not get wounded in battle. Like, it's a magic protection on the warrior. This is a very old shamanic warrior tradition where the, so the swords have a soul. For the samurai, the sword is the soul of the samurai. And losing the sword 
is a tragedy for a samurai. The sword is living, it is alive, and you can cooperate with it like it's a dance. Dance with your sword, that's what a warrior does. Battle is like a dance of a sword, and that's the skillfulness, the skillfulness of the ultimate samurai, the skillfulness of the ultimate King Arthur or knight, the skillfulness of the ultimate kshatriya is magic. That's why you read deeds about deeds of knights and samurai and you cannot understand how could Miyamoto Musashi, the ultimate samurai of Japan history, how could he defeat in duel 60, 100 people. One man could beat in duel 60. That's mechanically impossible. There is no swordsman who can fight with 60. And yet this is not Mahabharata. This is medieval history of Japan. Miyamoto Musashi in just one event killed more than 65 people alone with a sword. And they were all against him. Like there was a group, he didn't take them one by one. They were attacking him all. This is the sort of magic of knighthood that you are carrying a magic sword and your soul and that the soul of that sword are united by a magic oath and you become a sort of warrior of light. You become a sort of magic being which is way, way, way more than just a person with a sword. It's not about skillfulness in swordmanship. It's about a state of consciousness. It's about a trance. It's about being simply under possession of some spirits which do that work through you. So it's the same here. It's the same spirit that they are blowing conch shells which are called by the names. King Yudhishthira, son of Kunti, blew his conch. The Amanta Vijaya, while Nakula and Sahadeva, these are the last two of the five brothers, blew the Sugosha and the Manipushpaka. All of them had, even the conscious had names, had a personality. And it was the famous Manipushpaka or something. Like even the conscious were famous, were legendary. Try to realize, either this is a crazy dream or there is a usefulness in this. Like warriors don't live simply by dreams. They are supposed to go on the battlefield and win the battle. Therefore, there is there something which is hard to understand for today's. Even the warfare of today is so mechanical and demonic, blind, when compared to this. The supreme bowman, king of Kashi, the great charioteer, Sikhandi, Drishta Dyumna, Virata, and the unsurpassed Satyaki, Drupada, the sons of Draupadi, the mighty son of Subhadra, these, O king, from all sides, severally blew their several shells. That uproar tore up the hearts of the Kauravas and resounded on earth and in the sky. Then, seeing the followers of Dhritarashtra in battle array, his opponents, when the missiles started to fly, the monkey-bannered Arjuna, lifted his bow and spoke, O king, as follows to Sri Krishna. Now we are starting after the episode with blowing the conch shells. Now we come to the point where Arjuna, when about to start the battle, he starts talking. If you notice, Arjuna is monkey-bannered. There is a monkey on his banner, 
which is very significant because in India the only monkey which you can think about that would deserve to be on the flag of Arjuna is of course Hanuman, the monkey god who helped also Rama and now Lo is on the side of Arjuna and Krishna. But Hanuman represents Mars astrologically and is celebrated on Tuesday. So when you say that Arjuna is monkey flagged, he is a servant of Hanuman and he is under the frequency of Mars. So this would make us believe that maybe Arjuna is an Aries astrologically or maybe a Scorpio. That would be, a, or he is born on Tuesday or something thereof. I will not insist now on Oriental astrology. And he speaks to Krishna. The battle is about to begin and he says, Station the chariot, Krishna, between the two armies, that I may behold them standing, bent on doing battle, those with whom I have to fight in this warlike endeavor. I shall observe them who have massed here and are about to commence the war, eager to please the wicked Duryodhana in this enterprise of war. Thus bidden, O king, by Arjuna, Krishna stationed that best of chariots between those two armies. According to Yogananda, the chariot is the physical body. This is an allegory, like Krishna puts the body between the two camps. Like, as I often tell you, you human beings here in this world, you are in the crossfire between the good and the darkness. This is a battlefield. And the chariot is stationed right in the middle of the battlefield. And Arjuna asks himself, let me first see my friends and my opponents. Why he does this, as you will see in a second, he does this because he is torn by doubts. He is not sure that he wants to do what he is going to do. So Krishna, humbly playing charioteer, what a beautiful thing that Krishna who is God, Brahman, Krishna who is at least an avatar and who is much superior to Arjuna in terms of godliness and spirituality, Krishna asks, acts, I'm sorry, as a charioteer. He's just running the horses. Arjuna is the war maker. Arjuna is the hero. Krishna is a humble charioteer. He is a, the horseman. What a humbleness. It's exactly like Jesus who washes the feet of his disciples. Like he's not proud. He's ready to serve. Krishna is ready to serve. The history is longer, how he got there and everything. So Krishna stationed the chariots in front of Bhishma and Drona as well as all those rulers and said, Behold Arjuna, those massed Kauravas here. There Arjuna saw standing fathers, grandfathers, teachers, uncles, brothers, sons, grandsons and comrades as well as fathers-in-law and friends in the ranks of the two armies like these two camps, they were cousins. The Pandavas and the Kauravas, their fathers were brothers. So they were cousins, primary cousins. So this is a fratricide war. It is a war in which brother is pinned against brother. And it's terrible. He looks and he sees both in this camp and in that camp, 
people who are fathers, sons, brother, brother, cousins, friends. It's, it's terrible. Something terrible is about to happen. Seeing them, his kith and kin, Arjuna was overwhelmed by supreme compassion and sorrowing, he said, Beholding these relatives of mine in battle posture, ready to fight, my limbs droop, my mouth dries up, my body trembles, and hairs stand on end. Those of you who know what I'm talking about, it's very interesting, right? He's on the battlefield and he says, I'm overwhelmed and my hairs are standing on an end. You find it even in Bhagavad Gita, it's between the lines. The secrets of Kundalini Yoga are even in Bhagavad Gita for those who know. But you can be sure that the simple farmer of India, when he reads this, he doesn't stop for a second on this paragraph and says, why does he mention that? Because you can say, your hair stands on an end in awe, in horror, in fear. Uh, yeah, sure, I know. Yeah, he says, I'm so troubled that my hair is standing on an end. But in yoga, that means so much more because it's one of the main symptoms of Kundalini rising and it represents many, many other things. My bow, Gandiva, oh, the bow has a name as well. If the conch shell has a name, you can be sure that the bow, Arjuna is the number one archer of India, the bow must have a name because it's a magic weapon. So he says, my bow, Gandiva, slips from my grip. My skin is a fire. I cannot stand steady and my mind wanders as it were. No? Have you seen that when you want to do yoga or meditation and you can't stand still and your mind wanders and all that? He describes a state of being emotionally overwhelmed. Exactly as when somebody is jealous or depressed or confused or upset or this or that. And your yoga teacher says, meditate, do some laya yoga for God's sake, get out of this state. And then you say, I can't, I can't even sit quiet, I'm shaking, I'm trembling. It's not an unknown thing. Emotions can be very strong. In this situation, Arjuna is about to start a war with his cousins. And of course, he is super disturbed. It's more than that, he's supposed to start a war against his guru. Drona, his battle, his military guru. And that is inconceivable in Indian Vedic culture. And thus he's torn completely. Also I see contrary portents. In killing one's skin in a war, I can see no good at all. Like he basically says, how on earth did we get this far? How on earth did we get here? Look, like reality check. Stop for a second. Who am I? What's happening? What are we doing? You know, it's awareness, presence. And he says, for God's sake, what is it about to happen? What is this thing that it's about to happen? He asks Krishna because he knows that Krishna is super conscious. And he says, what's this? No, there is no glory in this. What are we about to do? Like how out of righteousness, out of our desire for righteousness, like this is right. This is the right thing to do. Look what we came to do. It's not possible. What's happening here? 
And he says, I don't seek victory, Krishna. He is detached, as you can see. He can be humble. He is the great warrior. And he says, I don't seek victory. For a kshatriya, this was dharma, like you had to seek victory. It was your duty. And he says, I don't seek victory, Krishna. I want neither kingdom nor pleasures. Oh, Govinda. Govinda is just another name of Krishna. How can kingdom, enjoyments, or even life profit us? Like he says, what we are going to do is so terrible, so dirty, so immoral, that we won't even be able to enjoy this. I mean, the vic he says, I don't want victory. Because victory is a terrible thing in these circumstances. Those for whose sakes are the kingdoms, enjoyments and pleasures sought, those very persons stand here to fight, surrendering life and possessions. Preceptors or gurus, his own gurus, fathers, sons, grandfathers, uncles, fathers-in-law, grandsons, brothers-in-law, relatives, these I, don't, I do not wish to slay, though they may slay, O Krishna. Nay, not even for dominion over the three worlds, much less for this earthly kingdom. The three worlds is an Indian typical way, mythological way of defining the whole universe. The universe is made of three worlds. Bhur, Bhuvah, Svaha. The three worlds, like in the Gayatri Mantra, may the intelligence that created the three worlds. In yoga, we call them the gross, the physical world, the subtle intermediary world, and the karana sharira, the causal world, the upper. The universe is made of three main layers. In yoga, we have them divided in seven, subdivided, so there are seven planes of the universe. But if you will ever join me in the metaphysical workshop, you'll see there that there are three. There is another way of describing the whole thing. The same thing, described in a slightly different way, is like divided in three worlds. And he says, I wouldn't do this, I wouldn't do such an abomination, even to become the king of the universe, not only of this little earthly kingdom. Like we're talking about something happening somewhere in central northern India. It's a speck of dust. It's like he, Arjuna is a wise man. Arjuna is a spiritual man. And he realizes in the big picture what we do here is still, a, it's, it's happening in a cup of tea. It's a small reality happening in a cup of tea. Why are we bothering? And look what are we brought to do for such a small thing. What pleasures shall be ours in killing Dhritarashtra's sons? These are the Kauravas. Or, O Krishna, only sin will accrue to us in killing these lawless foes. Like the foes, the enemies are lawless. He is sure about that. But killing them is still a sin. Is still, you know, he, he is not the kind of person who would like to do that. And in this last moment, it's like the moment of truth. It's like the awareness. It's the reality check. It's like we are about to start this thing. How can we do this? Therefore, we ought not to slay our kinsmen, the sons of Dhritarashtra. How can we, Krishna, be happy once we kill them? Like, we are supposed to win this war, but it makes no sense. Blinded by greed, though they do not see the evil that threatens our family with decay, or the sin in being treacherous to relations. 
How can we fail to turn away from sin, we who recognize the evil that threatens our family with downfall, O Krishna? Like he says, on the other hand, I understand that, there is, that these people are destroying everything, that they are full of darkness and the sin is there. The devil is in our midst and it is our duty as spiritual people to wipe out this sin. But how can we, because it's like we are between the hammer and the anvil, if we don't do it, we deny our duty? No, it's like that dictum which said that it is for the evil to triumph, it is enough for good people to do nothing. If good people stand aside and do nothing, then the evil would shamelessly advance. And the good people say, no, we can't, we have to be neutral on this. And the evil takes over and takes over and takes over. So every spiritual person knows that there is a limit where the foot has to be put down and you say no. No further than this. And therefore, he says on one hand, I understand the Dharma that our family, because those people are his family eventually, that our family is drowning into darkness and something has to be done. But on the other hand, are we going to kill them? What's this? And here there comes a verbal meditation which is beautiful but very old-fashioned and surely there will be parts of it which you will not like because you are born in Kali Yuga and educated in a very different way than those people were. He says, with the downfall of the family, he simply now mentions, uh, he makes a Socratic deduction. He simply shows the consequences and he says, he meditates with loud voice. He says, I can see the sin threatening our family with downfall. And with the downfall of the family, the Dharma, the religiousness, the righteousness will perish. Like the family is becoming a demonic family. Like we become like the family of a Colombian drug lord. It's blood money that we are based. Our power is based on corruption. And therefore he says, with the downfall of the family, the Dharma, the righteousness in that family is going to disappear. And he says, when righteousness perishes, then unrighteousness will overwhelm the entire family. Like, you cannot afford that, because then you become demonized, you become possessed by the darkness. And then comes one of the politically incorrect things from the Vedic. He says, due to this way of unrighteousness, O Krishna, so when a family is taken, when a clan is taken by this, the women of the family will be ruined. And the meaning of it is that the old Vedics believed that there needs to be a strong hand. There needs to be the patriarch of the family. Like the Jews believed the oldest son should take over. There needs to be a strong hand who is the ruler of the family. And without that one, the first thing which would happen is that the women will start decaying without any ambiguity because we didn't even start the teachings of Krishna. This means that there will be loose morality. There will, the women will, will feel free to start having sex with whomever, whatever. It's like in the Islamic families where there is honor killing. No, like you can't do whatever you want because there is an older brother or a father 
who supervises the honor of the family. And you can't just go and do whatever you want, especially as a woman in such a family. Of course, I am aware of the fact that the women's lib says something completely different. But in the old days, their perception was that the woman has to be kept in a protective environment in which, among others, there should not be any encouragement to fornication. There should be a sort of sexual restrictioning. If not, the women become like sex and the city. They can do whatever, whenever, and that was considered by them one of the steps of the decadence of the society, one of the ways in which the society decays. Again, this is, remember, this was in Christianity, this was in Islam, in Judaism, in Hinduism, in Thai society, in Buddhism, in all the ancient societies, the same thing was there. Remember that today we have surpassed that level much, much. In the last 50 years, nobody gives a damn on this in the Western society, or almost not at all. And that is why traditionalists always ask themselves, will society ever get back to what it was a thousand years or five thousand years ago? Or, once this thing was broken loose, we have to search for a new balance. It's like the, this line of defense has been broken and we have to move to the next line of defense. What is the next line of defense? This is where we, for example, as a tantric school, we are criticized because we preach relationships but at the same time, we in turn with Kali Yuga, in tune with this part of the time where we have, we allow in Tantra that relationships should be open, not open, any way people want it. If I were to have taught the Tantra, like I'm teaching it to you today, if I were to have taught Tantra in Europe, only a hundred years ago, I would have been spiked, I would have been impaled by the society for that. I would have appeared, I, Swami Vivekananda, would have appeared as the most dirty, immoral, terrible, odious person teaching tens and hundreds of young, thousands of young people a sort of immorality which is unspeakable. The British Parliament would have got goosebumps at the mere hearing of my name. So was the society a hundred years ago, not to mention two or three or four. Therefore, today we are at a level of a society where this wall has been broken. And once you got the pigeons out of the coop, it's almost impossible to put them back into the coop. And here is the dialogue between tantric, the dilemma, the opposition between tantric and non-tantric methods. The non-tantric teachers, all the Christian monks, all the Sufi ascetics, all the Buddhist monks and all the ashramites of Vedantin tendency in India, they all of them dream, and I would say absurdly, they all of them dream that one day people will come back to their senses, they are going to get hit with so much HIV and shit, 
that they are going to become like the Middle Ages. The women will stop lifting their skirts and showing their beauties. They will not go around making love and stuff like this and will get back to the good old-fashioned controlled society where women were not decayed or debased and blah blah, the thing which you all know and which funnily enough most people today despise and kind of ridiculize. And that's the dilemma. The old-fashioned spiritualists, they hope that with the coming of the Third World War, with the second coming of Jesus, with a comet hitting the earth, with the something, we don't know what, human beings are going to be taught a very bitter lesson, and then they are going to start behaving and the women will start gathering their hair and not go like whores with their hair freely flowing on their shoulders and decency will come back to the society. And then there are people like me who think that that's a wet dream and it shall never happen that way and the way of the society to progress is always forward and never backward. I personally have never seen in history things turning back to what they were, except for very brief periods of time of no significance. Therefore, in my tantric understanding of the world, once this wall was broken, the humanity has to find spirituality in another way. You cannot institute sexual restrictions on women, like you have to stay under the tutorship of your father or of your older brother until you get married. And when you get married, your father gives a whip with, together with you to your husband and your husband becomes your new master and you have to behave. And if you as much as look after another man, you can be stoned to death or beheaded or something like that. That time has passed. And unless a huge thing happens, it shall never happen. And I can bet that every woman in this room thinks in her mind, God behave that anything like this would ever happen. It's like I would commit suicide before I would see myself living in such a world again. Because indeed there was a restriction and that restriction was done for some reasons which they thought were religious. That restriction was like to keep the society healthy. In our opinion, in Tantra, once this coop is broken open, there is only an, another way, and that way is sexuality has become free, pretty wild, pretty chaotic, and then the only way is to do jujutsu. If, if it blows this way, pull it this way. Like encourage sexuality, but transform it into a spiritual sexuality. So we are not trying to press sexuality back into the box. Once it exploded, we are telling it, okay, if it exploded, then explode, for God's sake. Explode big time. Like if you really are in a sexual liberation mode, go fully in a sexual liberation mode. Because many people try to ride onto horses. They still want sexual liberation, but they also want a bourgeois Christian society like 200 years ago. You can't have both. You are utopian. And one day when we'll make a Shiva and Shakti, a Vira and Shakti meeting, I will hold my promise from a year ago that I'm going to speak about relationships and various degrees of relationship. There is no place to do that in our commentary on Bhagavad Gita. But the point being, there are people who utopically think 
that they can blend uh, suppressed sexual society which existed 300 years ago with monogamous marriages for men and women and bourgeois rules of the game and they can mix it with sex and the city and the new time, the post-hippie age in which people feel sexually free and they feel like they can do whatever they want and there is probably no girl here who would say, oh my God, if I have sex with somebody, my old brother would get pissed off or my father would come and kill me and the dude because we're having sex out of, you know. Nobody is there anymore. And that's why I remember there are two ways. Either you push it back, which I think it's not reasonable and can't be done, or at least if it comes this way, let it come this way big time and do it in a spiritual way. That's why... This problem existed since those days. The seers saw it, that the society from time to time was decaying. This story with the women is just a symptom. It's not of it. It goes more than that. From their ruination, if the women get ruined, which means it's a euphemistic way of saying lose sexually, confusion of classes is born to ensue. That's again politically correct translation. Because the word used in Sanskrit is varna, and it means colors. It means mixture of races and mixture of castes. In the time of Krishna, this was one of the utmost crimes in the society. A white woman to have sex with a black man, a black woman to have sex with a white man. And when I say black and white, I don't mean African or something. I mean darker in the skin, lighter in the skin. Like in India, Aryan Brahmins having sex with low-class Dravidians. This was a complete no-no. It's written in all the texts, even in Mahanirvana Tantra, which is a tantric text, that that is a sign of Kali Yuga. It says when the races will start getting mixed up, like you'll start having Metis or other races, half-mixed races, then it's Kali Yuga. It's time, it's sign that we reach to the bottom of the sack. I will take it from here next time. We'll stop, stop for now because it is late. I did not finish yet the primary chapter, the introductory chapter. Kri Arjuna is doing a loud voice meditation showing if things are going down, the whole godliness in this world will be lost. I will continue with it next time because it is getting too late. Let's stop here. And namaste to all of you.